Welcome to River's Edge Sermon of the Week. Thanks for joining us today. We're really believing that you'll benefit from the message that you're about to hear. A big thank you to those of you who share our podcast on social media. And thanks for rating and reviewing us on iTunes. For more information about us, please visit riversedgechurch.com.au. Welcome. Morning. How are you all? I don't know about... Oh, I'm okay. Thanks. (laughs) I don't know about you, but, you know, this morning... um, I honestly, David's words came to mind that I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Because from the minute that we stepped in here this morning, God who is always with us, his presence. I mean, Chris did a phenomenal job. It was his inauguration as meeting leader. I think he did fabulous. He did a fabulous team time, a little bit on theme. And, and what David shared... Um, and little did he know is very much the heart of, of what I'm going to be speaking about today. And that's when I know that God speaks to us all. And he often has a word to share with us. And then Ali comes up and honestly, this isn't a, you're not watching TV at the moment. Well, some of us are online. Bless you. Come join us in person. But, but the reality is that This is a family. We actually belong to each other. That's what we do. So when we come and be part of it, and what Ali and her team does, and she's very passionate about it. If you know her, she can't help herself. Her team's phenomenal. And truly what we're doing is sharing the love that the Holy Spirit has put in our hearts with the world, that they may know that there is this God who actually created everything that loves them. And that's really the part that we play on this earth. Last week, Pastor Luke spoke about making room for God in our lives, reflecting on the theme of this year, which is Jesus, nothing matters more. And even though this was the theme for this year, really, that nothing matters more than Jesus should be the theme for our lives where it's distinctly clear that our first love is Jesus, observed through our character and the decisions that we make in our life. That's why I love what David shared on, because he basically asked us to reflect and ask ourselves the question, is that the case for us? And it's not because somehow we're holier than thou, Because we only need to hang out with each other for little bits, and then we soon realize, ooh, okay, some stuff's going on here. And it's also not because we're shoving doctrine down people's throats, but it's because we live acutely aware of God in our daily rhythms of life. When we live in such a way that we know how dearly loved we are by God, because the Holy Spirit has filled our hearts with his love, and from that knowing, we embody his love. And as we interact with people in our world, they get to experience and taste God's love for themselves. Changemakers. So just this week... Uh, Rocco uh, had been ill for a couple of days, and um, Jed had bought him a drink, and I drank it. So he phones me um, on the way back to work on Thursday. He says, Mum, 
please stop and buy me the drink that you drank. I said, okay, sure. It was bucketing. It was ferocious weather. I don't know if that happened out here. I did it because, you know, we live out there. So, so I wasn't sure. But it, it, was, it, was, it was terrible weather. And um, I thought to myself, there were several servos on the way. But um, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to stop at the one closest um, to our home. And I did that. Minding my own business, walked in, got the drink, paid for it. As I'm walking out, an elderly lady walks in and she starts me. And she looked bewildered, and she said to me, do you know what that road is? So I gave her the information, but she seemed so unsettled. And I said, where do you want to go? No, um, I'm lost. And I did speak to someone, and they gave me information, and, I, and then I gave them $10. And, um, but I still don't know. So I said, do you have family? She says, I do. But both my sons live in Byron Bay and my daughter's somewhere in the south. Um, but I had been speaking to my son on the phone and he, he was trying to direct me. And I just sensed God saying, Yugi, help this lady. So I said to her, would you like me to drive you home? And she said, how, how are you going to do that? Because you're here in your car. I said, no, I'm close to home. I'll just phone my husband. And he can come pick up the car and follow us. Let's phone your son and let's tell him that's what we're going to do. Uh, and so we did that. We phoned his son and I phoned Alfred and Operation Getting Judy Home was underway. As we were driving, because she actually lived several suburbs away, she was very lost. Um, I started speaking to her. I asked her how old she was. She was 91. Um, and she said to me, it was quiet for a little bit, and then she said to me, you know, I asked God to please help me. And I just went, Judy, God heard you, and he's helped you. You know, like it's, it's all of a sudden you're in that place that you realize that God is actively working. I could have stopped at several servos, but I didn't. I stopped at that one, and there was Judy. And when we got to um, her village, uh, she got out and said the same to Alfred. And I said, Judy, God loves you. He heard your prayer and he came to your rescue. Like, I, I don't know Judy's story, but God does. I could have been dismissive because I had to get home and cook dinner and I had other things to do. But I prompted, I felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit. God was commissioning me and Alfred. <laughs> and you know what? This is not a brownie point story, not at all. I'm sharing this to encourage you. Just this morning speaking to Libby, and she was telling me that on Friday she was going about doing her thing, and she kept getting prompted to phone one of her, her, her sister-in-law. And, you know, she was prompted, but then she was busy, and then she was, you know, she, so she was sort of, you know, delaying it. But at one point, it just wouldn't go. And uh, she did phone her, and the sister said, I am so glad you phoned, because I want to tell you X, Y, and Z. This is an example of what God does through his body, through his people, a story that keeps repeating itself. But God so greatly wants people to know how much he loves them. 
that he sees them, that he is real and living, and we partner with him to fulfill his purposes. But I'm sure, as you have, as I have realized, that we're not always obedient, that we do get sidetracked and derailed at times, where God no longer holds first place in our lives. Humanity doesn't have the best track record when it comes to the faithfulness, to their faithfulness to God, like Dave mentioned. That's a bit of a Adam and Eve. Anyway, we'll leave that there. But right from the beginning, right there in the Garden of Eden, there was this temptation of more looks, far more attractive than what we already have. And this is still a challenge for us today. It's apparent that we still place huge value on what we have or what we accomplish. Yet when Jesus inaugurates his kingdom way in the Gospel of Matthew, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, he calls blessed the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the humble, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those that are persecuted because of him. Jesus intentionally elevates the afflicted and overlooked. He turns upside down a world that feeds on power and announces that the mark of his reign and rule is a life of love, of humility, and sacrifice. It does not make sense if we profess to follow Jesus and yet we so easily attach to a world that idolizes people by their positions or possessions. When Jesus points out that those who live according to his word and his example are likely to be the underdogs of society, God is more interested in our hearts than he is on our position or possessions. How many times have you said something along the lines, well, If only I had this opportunity, if only I had straight blonde hair, or lived by the sea looking at the ocean, or had the latest Travis Scott Air Jordans, or a different family, or if someone would just notice how wonderful I am. I mean, you get the gist of what I'm saying. And before we know it, We are cruising in the lane of discontentment. And when we in that lane, nothing satisfies us. We complain, we want more, there's always an issue, either with someone else or the circumstances we find ourselves in, and discontentment can cause us to start coveting. When we desire something so much, we act on it and make foolish decisions. We get into debt. We make bad judgments and even have moral failures. And the extreme of coveting is not wanting someone else to have it just so we would feel better about ourselves. And yet the deep irony of chasing possessions and and position is that when we get what we want or we get there, we find we are still not satisfied. And then we start chasing the next thing, never-ending 
The German philosopher Immanuel Kant said this, give a man everything he desires, and yet in this very moment, he will feel that everything is not everything. I've experienced this, and I see this all the time. When we find ourselves in a place of not being content with where we are or with who we are, we must fight to reorder our hearts to love God, like Dave prompted this morning. That we desire him, because when we do that, he shows us a deeper way. And one of the ways we fight this is by learning the skill or attitude of contentment, living a scandalous life of enough, being satisfied with what we have and where we're at, that if along the way in seeking God, we do acquire position or possessions, that they are to always be submitted and surrendered to God's will and purposes, that everything we do and touch and are is for the glory of God alone. In the same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sets the foundation for contentment when he talks about possessions. And he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Yes, Judy interrupted my Thursday afternoon, but at that moment, life was more than me going to make dinner. In the Gospel of Luke, someone approached Jesus and said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And this is very real because there tends to be issues with family when it comes to inheritance. And Jesus said to him, Friend, who appointed me judge or arbitrator over you? And then he says to the crowd, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in abundance of his possessions. In the three years Jesus taught people, he remained consistent on the theme of money, that money is dangerous, that money can harden our hearts against God and that it can lead to discontentment. Jesus came to make dead people alive and set them free. And we are only truly free if we can learn to be content, no matter where we find ourselves. Many of us are familiar with the story of Corrie ten Boom, who alongside her family hid Jews 
in their home when the Germans occupied the Netherlands. But in February 1944, they were ratted by a Dutch informant and the whole family was arrested. After several months, Corey and her sister Betsy were sent to a concentration camp. And at one point, their cell was infested with fleas. Now, Betsy had been ill her whole life, yet she was a woman of remarkable and unshakable faith. And when the fleas were there, she thanked God for them. But Corey was like, oh, that's a bit much. Like, how can you thank God for fleas? But as it turns out, that the guards also didn't like fleas. So they stopped coming to check their cell, which meant that Corey and Betsy could continue to read the Bible that they had smuggled in, pray, worship, and teach fellow prisoners the gospel of Christ. And many prisoners were converted to Christianity. Beautiful Betsy, who died in the camp, was content to live with fleas because a greater victory was in motion. I can only imagine the reward that awaits the Ten Boom family when Jesus returns. In his book, Contentment, The Secret to Lasting Calm, Dr. Richard Swenson says, contentment is one of the greatest joys and privileges of Christian life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Is God speaking code about a secret path to, path to freedom? Yes, it's a secret. Freedom from wanting more than is good for us. Freedom to wish blessing on everyone we meet without the slightest tinge of envy. Freedom to redefine wealth and possessions in biblical rather than cultural terms. Freedom to gladly surrender our strife and have it replaced by his rest. Freedom to be biblically authentic in an age of financially forced compromises. Freedom to understand that one heart inhabited by Christ is enough to take the world's opinion machine. The Apostle Paul was an example of this. Highly credentialed Jew with Roman citizenship, which was ideal status for the time he lived in. But on meeting Christ on that road to Damascus, he accepted Christ and counted everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And those credentials became insignificant. He suffered greatly as a missionary for Christ. This is detailed in 2 Corinthians 11. And yet, writing from prison to the Philippians, he admits that, I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that is the great context of that scripture. I think Betsy Ten Boom learned the same. 
Paul makes it clear that contentment is learned. How, how do we learn contentment? Well, Dr. Swenson gives us a few prescriptions to reorder our desires. Contentment is learned intentionally, intentionally and through making daily choices. Contentment doesn't come naturally. And we're going to have to be intentional about making it a goal in our lives. Making peace with, I am okay with what I have. I'm not going to feed my pride or envy or greed or insecurity. I, I can't afford to do that. I don't want to pursue things for the sake of having them or achieving something at the cost of what my well-being. You know what? I, I really like, love, well-engineered cars, especially fast ones. But when I became a mummy, I had to reorder that desire. Um, so I wrestled with this, and I, I had to wrestle with not wanting upgrades. And when I started looking a bit deeper, I realized that it was an issue of pride because I just didn't want to drive an old car. But you know what? Every time that completely unnecessary desire rose in me, I reminded myself that everyone was go wasn't going to be paying my monthly installments. We must learn to moderate our desires. We acquire things that we when we don't have money for it, and it becomes this vicious cycle that affects more than just us. We've got to stop and ask ourselves the question, is this necessary? What exactly is this going to add to my life? And if we can justify that, then the next question would be, for how long until it's not enough? We need to look at our patterns of behavior and then make a decision day to day to de-escalate our desires. And when we do this long enough, you're going to realize that desiring less actually makes you more satisfied. Paul said to Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can't take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul emphasizes that the desire to please God, godliness, paired with accepting the circumstances in which he placed us, contentment, is of great gain to us because we learn to lean into his rest and receive his peace. It no longer matters what the latest or greatest is because none of it matters on the other side of eternity. We don't take anything with us. And you could say, but I'm just enjoying life. And yes, you should. There's nothing wrong with enjoying life unless we start noticing patterns of dissatisfaction that persist. Then something is off kilter. Contentment is also learned through experiences 
and submission to God. There are things in this life that's going to happen that's out of our control. And we're going to have to learn contentment in those circumstances. When we look to look, learn to look deeper, like Paul and Betsy, we'll find God there giving us instructions and giving us strength when we don't have any. And as the days progress and we submit our thoughts and our actions and our experiences to God, we are slowly being changed into the image of Christ. When, and then we'll find ourselves on the road of contentment. Um, a few months ago, I had the privilege of meeting a lovely family uh, who exampled this in the most beautiful, sacrificial way, and they gave me permission to share their story. Their youngest child, Rod, um, was hit by a truck when he was 11 years old in 1986, and this accident um, caused severe neurological damage, and he was rendered a quadriplegic. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Rod's parents chose to take care of him themselves, and this meant that it was 24 hours around the clock because they took turns because he had to um, have suction because fluid will, would build up. Uh, Rod couldn't speak, but he seemed to understand his parents when they joked with him. He would sometimes smile or laugh. And um, I had felt when I first visited them that I'd walked onto holy ground. They just cared for their son in such a beautiful way. And they faithfully cared for him in this challenging, vulnerable state for 37 years until he passed away a few weeks ago. They did not project discontentment. That's not who I met. Their whole lives had changed in one moment, but they chose to accept their cross and carry it. There was a beautiful peace about them, and the love for their son was evident. And when, at his funeral, the priest said these words, he said, if you were looking for saints, you only needed to have knocked on Betty and Harold's door and you would have encountered them. When we learn contentment, we discover that we can do all things in challenging circumstances because he strengthens us through his presence, his wisdom, and his provision. James Russell Miller, a popular author and pastor in the early 1900s, said, but how can we learn contentment? One step toward it is patient submission to unavoidable ills and hardships. There are trials which we cannot change into pleasures, burdens which we cannot lay down, crosses that we must continue to carry, thorns in the flesh which must remain with their rankling pain. When we have such trials, why should we not sweetly accept them as part, as part of God's best way with us? Discontent never made a rough path smoother, a heavier burden lighter, a bitter cup less bitter, a dark way brighter, a sore sorrow less sore. It only makes matters worse. One who accepts with patience that which he cannot change has learned 
one secret of victorious living. When life serves us the unexpected, learning contentment rewards us with peace in the midst of pain. Learning contentment also means we have to adjust our hearts, to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things, like Paul writes in Colossians. In this day and age, we are constantly tantalized by so many things, and if we start loving the wrong things, our reward will be discontentment, because if this is where our focus is, we will never be satisfied. What contentment is not is settling for things that are, not in our, that are in our hands to control. Like if you hate your job, then look for another one in wisdom. You don't just, you don't just abandon ship, but find another one, then move on or choose a different career. There are a lot of challenges in life that we should address and try and change it. Contentment is also not resignation or laziness. Whatever we do should be done to the glory of God. And if along the way we encounter ourselves in prominent places like Joseph, who was grossly, unjustly treated, sold as a slave, prospered, then unjustly sent to prison, but because God was with him and gave him success, whether he was in the pit, in prison, or in a palace, He said these words to the family that, it so, that so did him wrong. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Imagine if Joseph crumbled under the weight of what happened to him instead of leaning into God who was empowering him. Go read the story starts around Genesis 45. Joseph, the Ten Boon family, Betty and Harold learned that even in their dire circumstances, God fulfills his purposes and many lives are saved. The writer of Hebrews commands us to be content. Keep your life free from the love of money. In older translations it says, let your manner of life be without covetousness. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is our greatest treasure and assurance. God is with us. When we live humble lives, God aligns himself with us. He resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Jesus demonstrated this by taking on human likeness, making himself nothing, becoming a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death. His obedience led to death, and God exalted him to the highest place. Amen. As Swenson says, if humility is a state that pleases God, it is also a state that is easier to sustain and more conducive to a contented life. When we have nothing to prove, no one to keep up with, are content with simple righteousness in daily affairs and maximize love instead of possessions, 
the cost is less, the pressure is less, and we spend less time looking over our shoulder. Can I invite the worship team to come back up? Life or living a simple and purposeful life is freeing and it allows you to enjoy and do the things in life that really matter. It is unimaginably hard to continue to lust after the things of the earth and then to learn to yearn the beauty and perfection of heaven. But our journey is so more about the unseen that, that what we see. You know, Martin Luther said there were only two days in his calendar, today and that day. The day that Jesus returns with a reward to give each person according to what they have done. John tells us in Revelation 22. Perhaps we should all be living today in light of that day. Henry van Dyck said, Remember what you possess in the world will be found at the day of your death to belong to someone else. But what you are will be yours forever. Maybe rather than comparing ourselves with others or being bombarded by a world bustling with the temptation of more, we should compare ourselves to Jesus, where there's no reference to the possessions he owned. He didn't envy the rich. He worked with his hands until he started teaching. He had access to power, but did not use it for selfish gain. He was abused, but taught us to bless those who persecute us. He was born with nothing, lived with nothing, and died with nothing. We learn contentment by working hard in this troubled world, yet yielding our hearts to God and submitting to his will, and quietly knowing that as we do our part, he as his. We pursue his agenda even when it's frightening, not collude to have him approve ours. He knows the end from the beginning and loves and cares for us deeply. I can only imagine when we decide, as David said, putting Jesus truly as our first love and continue to do that. How many more will be saved? Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to River's Edge Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, please visit riversedgechurch.com.au.